You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hello, Natalia. It's going well, thank you. Welcome to you to episode 10, double digits. Feels like a milestone. That's a milestone, right? Heck yes. I, I think we were proud of ourselves after episode two, so I feel like this feels a little bit more legitimate. Good start to 2021. A great start to 2021. But we were talking just before we started recording, and there's some sad news. Ooh, okay, so to the listeners that had heard and loved our story about the Somerville Turkey, of course, the Somerville Turkey is no longer. So the Somerville residents had fed the turkey, and the f- turkey became aggressive as a result, and it is no longer a hallmark of our city. The problem was they fed the turkey pure creatine. That was the that was the <laughs> issue. And Red Bull. They didn't publish that in the news story. They're trying to keep that hush-hush. That's why it got aggressive. But no, if, if you have no idea what we're talking about, on our Thanksgiving episode, uh, Natalia told us about a famous turkey in Boston that has mm. a name and uh, it's got an Instagram page and or something like that. But unfortunately, it's it's no more. That's pretty sad. Now that the turkey is no longer, maybe we should memorialize it? Ooh, so you're thinking we could potentially adopt the Somerville turkey as our Security Unlocked mascot. Maybe we could create some kind of small statue, some kind of plush (laughs) toy. (laughs) Is that where you're going? For some reason, my immediate image was a butter sculpting contest in which we sculpted butter sculptures of the turkey. Hang on, what? So I had said like as a as like a mascot and like something I think I said the word swag at least it was in my brain so like something we could send to listeners and so I just immediately jumped to the logistics of how do you send butter uh, through the US postal service in a intricate shape like that of a turkey Yeah I don't think you should be taking my suggestions quite so realistically if I we mean we had to choose though between some of memorializing the Somerville turkey and our previous plan which was the mighty alpaca as our animal mascot. Where are you leaning? Alpaca. Can we justify that from a security perspective? Is there any security link whatsoever from either either a turkey, Somerville turkey, or a uh, or an alpaca? What are you looking up? You're looking up something right now. I'm looking up. I'm looking up facts about alpacas because I, I have to be honest. This is purely on level of cuteness for me. Okay, so our our executive producer uh, Bruce Bracken has just chimed in <laughs> saying that guard llamas and guard alpacas are a thing. So it says here that a guard Ooh. llama, alpaca or hybrid can be used in farming to protect sheep, goats, hens or other <gasps> livestock from coyotes, dogs, foxes and other predators. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. We now have a solid link from the alpaca to security. 
well done, everybody. Congratulations. Mission accomplished. <laughs> we can go home now. <laughs> All right. At a minimum, Beautiful. we could talk about our next episode. Absolutely. All right. So let's table that. We've decided it is going to be the alpaca because the alpaca can be employed as a, as a rudimentary guardian of livestock. But speaking of the podcast, on today's episode, first up, we have <laughs> Jeremy Dolman joining us from the Mystic Group. I'm not going to explain what Mystic stands for because Jeremy will talk about it and it's a great start to the conversation. Jeremy is coming on to talk to us about the nation state section or chapter in the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the MDDR. This is the third of five conversations that we're going to be having on Security Unlocked where we deep dive into some of the topics covered in that report. This is also, I think, the first time that the Mystic team have compiled a lot of their nation-state tracking activity uh, over a sort of 12-month period into a single report. So first of all, it's a great read. Make sure you download the report, aka.ms-wac-digital-defense. And then uh, it's a great conversation with Jeremy, who really helps us sort of understand some of the core principles and ideas around sort of why is Microsoft in this space and then sort of what does Microsoft do with tracking nation-state actors. And then after Jeremy, we talk to Randy Trite, a principal security researcher at Microsoft, a longtime employee at Microsoft who has seen a lot of different groups and brings that expertise to his security team today. So we're talking to him about his path to security. And he is another security professional who doesn't have a formal or standard path to security. So he doesn't have a a formal education. And I think it's a good testament to the fact that so many security folks are autodidactic and just have a love of technology and find themselves continuously passionate and interested in it and eventually get to do their passion for a job. On with the pod. On with the pod. Jeremy Dolman, welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is one of several conversations we're going to have with folks that have contributed to the Microsoft Digital Defense Report that was released in September of 2020. Jeremy, thanks for for coming on. You're going to talk to us about Chapter 2 which is the chapter that talks about nation-state threats. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. I'm really, really interested uh, and excited to hear what you've got to tell us. But could we just start a little bit with who are you? What's your job? What do you do at Microsoft? What what does your day-to-day look like? Sure, sure. So let's see. In Microsoft terms, I'm a principal program manager in the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. We, We call ourselves Mystic. So I'll probably use that term off and on um, throughout the conversation. It's much easier to say than Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. As a program manager in Mystic, I am responsible for, let's see, directing a large number of projects that kind of span incubation and driving threat intelligence initiatives, both in Mystic and across Microsoft. I do things around building and creating strong collaboration partnerships across the security industry because malicious actors like nation-state actors um, don't just target Microsoft. I also work on sourcing the best possible tooling for our analysts and managing all of our public-facing messaging around Mystic and the threats that we track. So I guess in general, my role is always looking for ways to improve how Mystic protects our customers, um, making sure that the analysts are successful and effective at hunting, and making sure that Mystic knowledge outside the company is communicated effectively to protect our customers and 
enable better protections across the ecosystem. I have to ask, is Mystic a backronym? Did you guys get in a room and say, how can we come up with the coolest <laughs> acronym in the company and then make it work for what we do? There's actually a couple of others, I think, that are cooler as well. But um, nonetheless, no, we, ha- we actually have um, our, our GM is notorious for, let's just say, um, obscure acronyms that um, translate into words. So um, it, it took a little bit of effort, took a little bit of time, but we came up with Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center and then, it, you know, M-S-T-I-C pronounced as mystic. So we worked through a few other variations, but I think this was the best one that came out and it seems to have stuck. I think there needs to be a, a, an offshoot team for analytics and learning at the end. Does, does anyone get that joke? Mystical, yes, yes, yes. yes. Mystical? Yeah, right? No? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Actually, good, good. Uh, I know a couple of people. I know a couple of people on the analytical side that would um, that might actually run with that. I, I might have to jot a note down. There you go. I'll. Uh, you can have that one for free. No, no royalties <laughs> from me. That's that's fine. The next one charge though. <laughs> the next one's not free. That this first one's free. Um, so so Jeremy, you're going to walk us through chapter two, the nation state threats. It's a pretty it's a pretty lengthy um, section of the MDDR. It's also, I think, correct me here or orient me here. This is the first time that we've done sort of an annual wrap up of what Microsoft has seen in the nation state space, I think. Obviously, we've had lots of blog posts and activity over the many years on, on the activity that we've, that we've uh, seen and, and sort of, you know, how we've contributed to it. But previous sort of security intelligence reports didn't really include a lot of nation-state activity. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is this, is this sort of the first time that we've done like an annual look back at what happened in the nation-state space? Historically, uh, our team hasn't been very publicly outspoken. And we haven't really historically didn't spend a lot of time um, talking about what we've done externally. So this is definitely unprecedented and something that's brand new for our team. It's kind of along the lines of what we've been doing over the last couple of years, talking a little bit more publicly about threat actors and such. So I think this is a fantastic roll up in view of what we do. I think it goes along with our expansion of Mystic as an organization and kind of what we've been trying to do, informing our products and customers more broadly. So, Jeremy, why does Microsoft do this work? Uh, why do we partner with the industry to identify nation-state actors? Sure. I think the short version is that Microsoft customers using our products are often the target of nation-state actors. And those customers expect Microsoft security products and Microsoft to help protect them from those threats. So, Mystic tracks nation-state activities to protect our platforms, to protect our services, and protect our customers from those more sophisticated threats. So, Jeremy, I've got the report open here in front of me, and for those uh, playing along at home, you can download the report. It's the Microsoft Digital Defense Report at aka.ms-wac-digital-defense. And if you scroll down to page 44, there is a really interesting sort of graphic here. It says the sample of nation-state actors and their activities, and there's a bunch of what look like sort of chemistry symbols from uh, <laughs> sort of the, the periodic table of elements with a lot of chemistry names and symbols. And then there's some sort of other things as well. Can you sort of walk us through what, what are we looking at here? This is, is this actual sort of nation state actors and sort of how they're referred to and the names that are being used to refer to them? Across the security industry, um, a number of different security vendors use different code names to refer to sets of activity that are tied to certain actors or sets of activity groups. So 
We use code names because we can't always necessarily tie that to a specific country, or we may not want to do attribution. Other security vendors will use um, kittens and tigers and bears. Some use numbers and a variety of different code names. And at Microsoft and in Mystic, when we were trying to figure out how we were going to do code names, uh, we tried a bunch of different things. I think initially there was some use of dinosaur names. That got fairly complicated and hard to pronounce very quickly. <laughs> I think we played around with a bunch of other things. At, at one point, I recall we were looking at flavors on the beer flavor wheel. I'm not sure there was enough of them. Um, so we, we played around with this a little bit. And we ended up basically at periodic table of elements because, um, you know, there's not really a licensing violation there. So we didn't need to worry about that. And there was plenty of them. And they were fairly unique. So we name, code name our actors by elements in the periodic table. And we will name an actor an element once we understand that actor as a unique set of activity. But on that page 44 in the report is a summary of a few of our key activity groups by their element names and largely focusing on the four regional sets of actors that we and most threat intelligence teams will focus on around China, North Korea, and Russia. And is there any sort of logic to the the particular element that's chosen? I mean, I, I noticed that there's there's no hydrogen, there's no oxygen. They all seem to be, well, they seem to be up towards the the top end of the periodic table. I I've never even heard yttrium. of y- yttrium. Yttrium. <laughs> Is that, did Kanye West come up with that yeah. one? What's that? Um, no, it's kind of funny because we actually have we actually have an individual on our team over in our UK office. She's responsible. She's our librarian is kind of the role that she plays and she is responsible for naming. So there is no, I don't think there's any specific logic or pattern to who gets what name. I don't know if, I don't even know if our analysts have a say in picking any of the names, but uh, that our librarian is the person that basically gives these names out. And I, I, I don't think she has any set structure or method for picking the names. I was really hoping you were going to say there was a periodic table of elements like stapled to the wall and then you had to throw <laughs> it down. Somehow I knew it was going to be you know and wherever it landed was I, the I, new, I honestly was would not be new. surprised if that was actually the case, but I can't verify that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's for another episode of the podcast for us to follow up on. So can you provide a little bit more context on, on the players? What do we know about them, their motivations, their infrastructure? Sure. So a, a, number, a number of these actors are pretty well known when you talk about kind of the more popular or more widely discussed actors as kind of hard to not fairly rapidly get to strontium, which others refer to as APT28 or Fancy Bear. And this is, a, this is an actor set that we believe is, um, originates in Russia. And, uh, you know, this is, this is someone that we've, an activity set that we've talked about fairly extensively over the years of public discussion around these actors, whether whether targeting individuals or campaigns or entities involved with politics. So they're probably the more well-known out of Russia. I'll just kind of hit a couple in each, in each one of these here. Phosphorus, in, uh, which is an actor set that we believe is based uh, originating from Iran, also known as APT35 and Charming Kitten. They're well-known for targeting um, government defense industrial, especially in the region, in the Middle Eastern region. 
especially fond of targeting um, personal email accounts and, and going after personal email accounts as a way to gain access to um, to systems that they're targeting or individuals and surveil individuals. A lot of activity there tied to sanctions and uh, research around policy, that sort of thing. In China, we have actors that more broadly, I would say, are um, more likely to use more sophisticated technical solutions, trying to bypass uh, or using more sophisticated malware, but technology, supply chain targeting, targeting education, medical research, actors like Barium, known as APT41, uh, manganese, which will often target communication infrastructure. They'll even go after things like satellite or defense industry or GPS navigation. And then North Korea actors like thallium and zinc, we'll see them targeting human rights organizations and surveilling human rights organizations that might be involved in their region geographically, but we'll also see them often targeting think tanks and governments that are involved in sanctions or policy decision-making that might be tied to the Korean Peninsula. What defines, why is Strontium a nation-state actor and not simply just a sort of independent group of baddies? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the simple, the simple definition of a nation-state activity group is we, we define it as cyber threat activity that originates in a particular country with an intent to further national interests. So because that activity fits that parameter, there's an assumption that it's more well-funded potentially more sophisticated, and they're more likely going to be using what we call advanced persistent threats, which is an adversary that possesses a sophisticated level of expertise and significant resources that allow it to achieve its objectives using a lot of different attack vectors. It's a combination of expertise and significant resources, adequate funding to achieve specific objectives in a particular country with intent to further national interests. And what about attack techniques? So you hinted at that in your definition. So what are some commonalities or patterns that you can identify across nation state actors that differentiate them from other threat actors? So when you think about nation state actors, and, and I would say in most of our threats, most of our threats, even outside of nation state actors, you're going to see most threats start with email. I think, we, I think there, was a, there was a blog post we put out not too long ago that said 95% of threats start with email, start with an email lure. From a nation-state actor perspective, uh, that's largely a technique to achieve reconnaissance, to find out or identify who the people are that they need to target to achieve the objective that they're trying to achieve. So they, they will do things like uh, password spray techniques to attempt to guess login passwords for a number of accounts tied to a specific organization that they're trying to target. They will do brute force login attempts, trying to guess the passwords and try to brute force their way into an organization. That early reconnaissance technique allows them to establish an initial foothold into an organization and also then harvest credentials. So if they can start guessing passwords and they can understand what those passwords might be, they can harvest those credentials store those credentials, and then use those in future operations to come back into that network and execute whatever operation or mission they might be trained to achieve. 
once they've actually established in there and often as a way to get a foothold into a network, they'll use malware. Malware is a very common method by nation state actors. And I would say some actors on the nation state side, because of the excessive funding that they have at their disposal, they will go above and beyond in building out particularly sophisticated malware techniques to um, bypass common detections by security vendors and some networks. So that's constantly a game that we're playing to understand these malware techniques. We'll also see nation state actors using very sophisticated and personalized lures. They will spend a significant amount of time, and this is something we just blogged about a couple of weeks ago, an actor named Phosphorus, which originates in Iran. We're actually using building rapport and building relationships with individuals that are tied to international policy. And by building that rapport with those people, they were actually able to send them invitations masquerading as uh, the Munich Security Conference, which is a prominent international policy conference, masquerading as the conference and um, trying to lure that person to their fake invitation so that they could steal their credentials. A little bit of social engineering happening there, but a nation state actor is going to have the resources and funding at their disposal to be able to build out those most more sophisticated techniques. And then finally, I would say there's a lot of uh, nation state actors that spend a significant amount of time building out capabilities, relying on common weaknesses. So when a new patch goes out, patching a security flaw within a Microsoft product, for example, a lot of actors will reverse engineer that flaw, better understand it, and then use it to weaponize a new exploit, which is why it's exceptionally important for customers to patch as quickly as they can to avoid that weakness that Microsoft is attempting to patch, that weakness becoming an entry point for a malicious actor, because nation-state actors will move rapidly to take advantage of that and then attempt to exploit those weaknesses where they can. So that's a couple of techniques that I, I would say, you know, we, like I said, we dive a little bit more in to, into in the report, but um, there's more in there, especially things like web, web shell-based attacks, which we see increasing, but I'll let you go read that in the report. Yes, nice teaser for our audience. Uh, one interesting point made in the uh, nation-state section of the MDDR was the downstream effect. So if I understand it correctly, the nation-states will pursue these techniques and then eventually other actors will pick them up. So how does that happen if they are these sophisticated groups that are leveraging, like you said, more complicated malware? Is it that the other attackers use simplified versions of it or as it's in the wild, they get more exposure and are educated on that strain of malware and then are able to use it. So what does the process look like from nation-state actor using these attack types to uh, another attacker in the wild? Yeah, I, I think you nailed it there with the, the, second, the second example you gave, because that's typically what happens is once this exploit gets out in the wild, you know, it's not just Microsoft watching for these more sophisticated threats, all of the other actors out there, whether they're criminal organizations or individual hackers, whoever it might be, there's a whole ecosystem of people out there that are watching for these threats to evolve and looking for new techniques. So when a nation state actor might have a particularly sophisticated attack that goes out, there's any number of people who will pick up and discover that through various you know, security researchers 
out in the ecosystem, and then they will immediately go do exactly what we do, which is reverse engineer that, understand how it works, and then you'll see variants come out. We look at things like the VPN exploits that were in, that came out in mid-2019. Those VPN exploits were picked up and used by an actor that we call Manganese to steal credentials and gain access to victim networks using VPN infrastructure and um, holes in unpatched systems by you know on VPN networks. So when you think about a world, the world we live in right now where everybody's working remote and global enterprise IT departments are relying on VPNs to improve connectivity and security for their systems. If that VPN infrastructure is not updated in its patching, um, actors like Manganese were taking advantage of that patch, reverse engineering it, and then going out to find VPN infrastructure that hadn't been patched and then exploiting it to gain access to those networks. Well, what we've seen subsequently is everybody else saw the technique and realized, hey, VPN, everybody's using those right now. And they started taking that and tweaking the same technique. And now those exploits have become, uh, unfortunately, become fairly commonplace. Jeremy, you said that the one of the characteristics of a nation state group is the sophistication in their techniques. And so uh, I sort of have to ask, do, do we know if many of these groups, any of these groups are utilizing AI, machine learning? If so, how? We don't have conclusive evidence. I don't think, I mean, you know, short of us walking into their, you know, walking into their infrastructure and taking pictures of systems, which isn't something we do. But I think there's enough indicators. That sounds like a great idea. You should, <laughs> I'd get, I'd, I'd make that a priority. <laughs> that, would, that would definitely make, uh, make our jobs a lot more interesting. <laughs> I would say that we've seen indication of nation state actors starting to take advantage of whether it's machine learning or, or AI. It's unclear. They're starting to take advantage of more sophisticated techniques in those directions. When you think about a password spray campaign where you are trying to attempt to guess the passwords for a number of different accounts across one organization, that takes a certain amount of compute, a certain amount of effort, and a certain amount of automation that can be enabled. But if you take that and you expand it into something like we blogged about from Strontium in September, for example, we saw Strontium attempting to password spray a number of organizations, and they were spear phishing hundreds of organizations with thousands of password guesses in very short periods of time. And then they, on top of that, they were using thousands of IP addresses and anonymization uh, platforms to obfuscate their activity. So when you think about the complexity of that operation, and the speed at which they were able to execute it, it would make sense that actors like that are starting to take advantage of machine learning or some automation capabilities on the back end to increase the speed, the effectiveness, and um, the scope of, of their operations. I think all of this is leading up to what is Microsoft doing? So how are we disrupting nation state threats today? So we, we do a number of different things. I would say probably the best and most effective way is using Microsoft's voice to raise awareness of these activities. And that comes in a number of different ways. We have the blog post that we put out, the Microsoft on the Issues blog, puts out a lot of interesting um, content that's derived from Mystic Research. And what that does is it kind of helps drive that broad discussion around what can be done to combat malicious nation-state activity against governments, academia, social organizations, um, individuals. A lot of nation-states like to target your personal email accounts. 
but we still defend those private email accounts because whether it's Outlook or a personal email account, that's something that we also have to protect our customers who might be getting attacked through that type of a vector. I would say probably one of the more interesting ways has been on the legal side. So one of our our unique ways to target nation state actors has been um, partnering with our colleagues in the digital crimes unit here at Microsoft. And um, the digital crimes unit is responsible for pulling together a lot of the evidentiary information and um, understanding the threats from a legal perspective. And then they take that to courts and um, use litigation to seize domains and other assets that are being used by these nation state actors. And then actually through legal action, shutting down those attack vectors. And then from time to time, we'll also, if we have sufficient information to warrant like one-time action to delete or shut down infrastructure or assets that are associated with a nation state actor, we'll also take those proactive measures against that infrastructure to basically eliminate visibility or capability on an actor and forcing them to go rebuild that infrastructure. They will typically roll over infrastructure and start rebuilding and come back later. So that's not necessarily a whack-a-mole game we want to get into uh, in a lot of cases, but if it's for the protection of our customers or if we feel it's particularly effective, that is something that we'll do as well. So that's a variety of a few ways. Obviously, the one that I didn't touch on that's probably the most obvious one is leveraging our own technology and using all the knowledge that Mystic collects about these threats, these actors, their tactics, their techniques, and transforming, translating those into detections, transforming and putting those into blocks and protections that show up in our security products and protect our customers in their environments. And the whole, the whole objective there has, has always been to make sure that we're implementing relevant, accurate, and actionable threat intelligence for our customers. Where can folks go, apart from reading the MDDR, where can they go for more information on, on how to protect themselves against uh, nation-state attacks if they find themselves in one of these targeted industries? So we don't have a, we don't have a mystic page. But I would say in the, in the MDDR, we definitely have a section at the end of the nation-state threat that's called Comprehensive Protections Required. And it walks through the defensive positions that you can take, the strategies that you can enable there. And then at the end, at the end of the defense, digital defense report, we have what are called actionable learnings. And I would recommend you go there and um, dive into that section as well. And every time Mystic puts out uh, a blog post, we will always have something at the bottom that are generalized recommendations also. So if we put out a technical blog post that walks through the techniques of gadolinium or strontium, we will always have at the bottom the specific techniques for that threat that would help you mitigate or protect yourself from that threat. So always watch the, for those blog posts and then probably for the digital defense report, go out and look at the actionable learnings. That's probably the best place to start. Hey, Jeremy Dolman, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, we've really only scratched the surface of that nation state threat section of the MDDR report. So if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to learn more, head to defense and download the report. And there's lots more detail and lots more uh, articles linked to that you can read to learn more about this space. Jeremy Dolman, thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for having me, guys. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today, we are joined by Randy Trite. 
Thank you, Randy, for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's kick things off by chatting a little bit about what you do. So what's your role at Microsoft? What does your day-to-day look like? My title is Principal Security Researcher. I'm on the Defender Endpoint team, so focused mainly on detecting new threats that we haven't seen before. Protecting Patient Zero is a big focus of mine. Recently, I've started looking into some new kinds of attacks using OAuth phishing, so that's sort of my like current main focus area, but I've done a lot in cloud protection. I've, I've been on the team forever, so I've worn a lot of hats and done a lot of roles. So what were some of the other roles that you've been at at Microsoft? Like, what was the first one that brought you to Microsoft? I've been at Microsoft 20 years. I started in the Exchange team and worked on some mobility stuff, but pretty quickly, and so I started in 2000. In 2003, I joined the antivirus team, which was brand new at Microsoft, really Microsoft's first foray into uh, trying to get serious about the antivirus space. And I joined as a program manager, actually. So security research is a fairly new role for me, but was basically worked on the backend infrastructure for our antivirus platform in the early days. And, you know, that was the days of uh, worms running rampant everywhere. You had SQL Slammer, MS Blast, Sasser Worm. Code Red, Nimda, all the greatest hits of when security was a very dark, dark time in, in, at Microsoft. And that's when I started and then have done a ton of stuff since then. So I worked on the antivirus engine as a PM and, and from the engineering side, eventually moved on to do a lot of uh, work with uh, our cloud protection system in the last kind of period. And then uh, about two years ago, I guess I moved from uh, engineering side into security research. So were you sold on security after being part of the AV team? Was that what did it for you? Our customers, every, uh, Microsoft's reputation, everybody, friends and family, everybody was just getting hammered uh, by security threats at the time. And I really wanted to do something about that. Uh, you know, working on Exchange was fascinating from like a technical perspective, but getting into the security space where there was a real opportunity to go to battle against the bad guys and, and try and really uh, protect I'm sure we all back in those days, this is, you know, mid 2000s, early 2000s, had friends and family who got hit by a worm or a virus or a scam. And so it was very motivating for me to get into a a place where I could do something about that. And that's sort of driven me ever since. And I've, you know, done a few other forays into some stuff. Like I, I took a break from security for about two years, like around 2012, went and worked on Xbox for the Xbox One when that was getting uh, released and learned a ton about services. And that was a good break, but I couldn't stay away from the, the security space. Randy, I'd, I'd love to come back to that, that first gig of yours uh, working in the, the anti-malware space. So for whatever reason, I actually went down a rabbit hole recently trying to better understand the history of Defender. Sounds like you were there at its sort of inception. My, my understanding is that the first sort of anti-malware, anti-virus client, uh, first of all, it wasn't built into the OS. It was a, it was a download. And was it something that we built in-house or was it an acquisition? Was it a combination? Do, do you know the history? Were you there? Yes, for that? I was the third PM hired into the antivirus team. And it was right after the decision to acquire RAV from a Romanian company called GCAD. And so the I started on a Monday and on Wednesday, all of the Romanian developers showed up. Many who are still on the team today, Mati Marnescu, who was the lead developer of the engine, is still the the lead architect on the antivirus engine. And I remember they all uh, 
it was an interesting cultural experience because they all came in and the custom in Romania was that you would every morning go to everybody's office and shake their hand and greet them in the morning. And so that was, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. Uh, unfortunately they, you know, I think became acclimatized to the not as polite American way of doing things like that, <laughs> that sort of died out after a few weeks, but yeah, it was an acquisition and we didn't actually know what we were going to do with it at the time. So there was, you know, there was always a desire to bring the protection capability into the operating system, but you know, that that's a big rock to lift. And eventually we got there with Defender in the interim. It started out as a, like you said, a, a download. So the initial you know, for years, we've had the malicious software removal tool that comes out every uh, patch Tuesday and runs on everybody's machine to clean up the ecosystem of malware. But before that, it was actually a the very first release of the same engine that runs in Defender today was something called Blast Clean. It was a blaster removal tool to remove the blaster worm. And we released that in late uh, 2004. I have some stories about uh, testing it out on my uh, on my home machine and actually infecting it and my kids not being able to play magic school bus the next day. So, uh, and getting a call at the office. So those were, uh, those were fun times. Can you elaborate on that? Is that, is that the story? Is there more to it? So what happened was the blaster worm, you know, there was a particular patch that if you weren't patched, it would infect your computer within a few seconds of being online. And so we had the early builds. This was December kind of heading into Christmas season around in 2004. And I decided, well, I'll, I've got a, my computer at home. I'll just uninstall the patch and let it get infected. And then I will run our removal tool and make sure that it works. You know, it was not the brightest thing to do. Don't do this at home uh, kind of thing. And, and you know, I was, I was younger and, and more eager to just, you know, do crazy stuff that I would probably be a little more careful these days. But I did it. I uninstalled the patch. The machine uh, got infected, rebooted, which was part of the infection. And then it came up and I ran our removal tool and it worked great. And then I decided to try it again. So for those who may remember the blaster worm, there was a, another worm called Nachi that somebody else had written and released exploiting the same uh, vulnerability. And Nachi was the blaster, was tried to remove blaster and then patch your computer. And so our, our tool removed both of those. And what happened in my case was the machine got infected with Nachi, but it was a copy of Nachi, the Nachi worm, that had itself been infected with a file infecting virus, which infected all the uh, executables on my machine and then basically bricked it and made it so it wouldn't boot. I know that I got infected with Blaster Worm. I can remember that because I got in big trouble from my dad. But I I sort of can't remember what it did. I mean, I know that it stopped. No one could use the computer. It it just completely, like the computer was unusable. But can you just kind of bring us down memory lane? What, if if you were infected by Blaster Worm, what actually, what happened? You know, it was not a worm that was uh, exfiltrating data off your machine. Like now it's all about money and these crime groups, you know, trying to uh, exploit the ecosystem with ransomware and that kind of thing. It was really just designed to spread. So it was purely as I recall, and if I'm remembering correctly, but it would just try and infect, it would infect your machine and your machine should actually be able to run with the infection. Although like in my case, and maybe in yours, if, if it got infected with a version that was itself infected with something else, it would just break the machine. And like if there was a file infector, which is what I experienced with the Nachi worm, but essentially it would just try and spread to other machines that were unpatched 
like randomly spraying IP addresses, trying to find a, a another machine that that had the vulnerability. So you mentioned that right now part of your role is to focus on protecting patient zero. So how is that different than some of the work you've done in the past? And what's different about focusing on patient zero in specific? The attackers could guarantee that that they could release something into the wild that wasn't detected because they that wasn't detected by current signatures. So before we had cloud protection, you just had the heuristics and signatures that were you know released that were on uh, on disk in these virus definition updates that you know computers would download periodically, uh, typically a, you know a few times a day. So you couldn't really protect patient zero because the attackers would always be able to tweak their malware until they they saw from scanning with say the virus signatures that you weren't going to be able to detect it, and then they would release it. And then, then the clock starts ticking at that point, and you have a certain amount of time before, say, a customer reports that to Microsoft or we uh, discover that uh, sample from you know some sort of honeypot or, or whatever. And then now you have, okay, we need to quickly add a signature and ship that out to the customers. So the cloud has been a real game changer because it gives us an opportunity to you know, run all these machine learning models in, you know, in real time, in milliseconds to make an evaluation of a file that we've never seen before and decide that it's malicious and then, and then block it. That has been a huge game changer uh, in terms of protection capability and really shrinking that time to protection to uh, milliseconds from where it used to take days and hours to get a signature out. And how do you sort of measure the false positive rate if there, if there is one in that sort of protecting patient zero? How do you measure and then how do you sort of find that balance between, you know, a couple of false positives, which would be probably annoying, but do you allow yourself a few of those to, to slip through in order to genuinely protect patient zero or are the, the, the models so good now that the false positives are extremely rare? Uh, well, we're always going to have some false positives. You know, ML is not perfect and human expert rules and human logic is not perfect. So there always will be false positives. We have certain thresholds that we, you know, try and keep our rules under or that are basically kind of lines in the sand that, hey, in order to release a new, say, detection rule in our cloud cloud protection infrastructure, you know, it has to run in an experimental period for a certain amount of time, typically, you know, even a, a few weeks while we gather all the data on what it would have blocked on, and then we can evaluate, is it having a nice, you know, low false positive rate? So there are certain uh, thresholds that we need to make sure all those rules are are running under. And then we have guardrails to make sure that if all of a sudden a rule or, you know, an ML model starts, you know, something changes under the, under the hood and it starts having too high of a false positive rate, then we have systems to alert and automatically disable things until somebody goes and investigates and that kind of thing. So uh, we're definitely very uh, cognizant of trying to find that balance between blocking the, the bad stuff, but not causing uh, too many false positives and, and causing pain and headache for our customers. And does, does your team monitor that, uh, th- those metrics? Is that what your team, as part of looking after patient zero, is that, is that one of the things that you, you track sort of day to day or is that another part of the org? Yeah, it's definitely our team. I mean, there are other sort of kind of data science focused people who will do a lot of the infrastructure work to support uh, running those metrics. But our team looks, you know, we 
that's creating the the cloud rules and and some of that capability will work on writing watchdogs and guardrails and alerts and things like that, just as part of uh, kind of the end to end pipeline of of creating that protection. What are those some of the, those tools that you you use day in day out, Randy? Like when you start your day, where are you going to? Is you do you have some sort of like team dashboard, or are you are you going into some kind of Azure ML service? Yeah, what's in your toolbox? So we definitely have our uh, dashboards and tools that are kind of uh, the sort of go-to place for, oh, you want to see the trend of detections over time and, and these kind of things and monitor your rules and whatnot. I tend to go a lot deeper into the, the actual data. So I, I'm a big uh, fan of Jupyter Notebooks and Pandas on, on Python. I've done a bunch of stuff in R in the last couple of years. Lately, I've been using Databricks uh, Notebooks, which are fantastic because it basically lets you do big data. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with the notebook type environment, but it's essentially a combination of sort of markdown, like notes and, and graphs and visualizations. Nick, I know you've seen some of my heat maps that I like to generate showing where, where we're seeing you know, particular attacks happening globally. Like th- that's all done in this notebook environment where you have this data under the hood. You can write Python code or R or Scala and then to process the data and then at the other, you know, it'll spit out like, you know, a beautiful heat map or like global heat map or, or graphs or data. And you can just sort of have instant querying at your fingertips. So I, I typically like my, my day starts with usually firing up some kind of a notebook, pulling in some data. I'm often looking for gaps. So where are we not doing well? So, you know, what did we see over the last uh, maybe some, uh, let, me, let me find files that we're now blocking in the cloud because our, our cloud learned that these are malicious, but maybe we missed patient zero and maybe we missed the first, you know, 25 encounters. And now then we, we started blocking. Oh, let me, let me figure out what happened there. Why didn't we block? How do we close that gap? That's kind of my, my day job, I would say, is really trying to find protection gaps where we're not doing a good job and figure out how we close them and then go actually implement something to, uh, uh, to close those gaps. And, and I tend to work with the, uh, Python, mostly day-to-day in uh, like a Jupyter Notebook or more recently, these Databricks Notebook type environment. I love it. It's like, uh, it's, you know, compared to the old days of you're running uh, just SQL queries against, a, a, you know, a small set of, of SQL data, like the, the things you can do with these sort of, I would say, data scientist type tools like Jupyter Notebooks is very freeing, I guess is how I would put it. And Randy, what's flagging those gaps? So you say you look for gaps. Is that just your experience, your expertise? You you know you know what you're looking at when you see data, when you see dashboards, when you see reports, or are there sort of a combination of processes that are specifically looking for you know a detection that picked something up and then sort of went backwards in time and realized that oh you know here are some here are some historical detections that we actually missed. Like how do you find gaps? I think that's the question. It's a combination of you know manual spelunking into the data and, and really looking for, you know, kind of going off intuition or, or things I've done before. But we do have automation that will flag, you know, certain events. And we have watchdogs and other rules that researchers write. In my mail inbox in the morning, uh, often I will have a list of these, you know, potential uh, misses where maybe we missed detection on the first patient zero through through 10. And then we started blocking. And so, I might go and look at, oh, let me, let me dig into that a little bit and find out what, what happened there. So in some cases, it might be that we had a 
malware probability threshold that we were looking for to say from an ML model that says, oh, block if the probability is 0.95, so 95% probability that this uh, file is malware. And, you know, going into the data in telemetry, we might see, you know, I might see that there is a, uh, we didn't block because the probability was 0.93. And so one of the things I would look into then, oh, can we reduce that probability from that we're looking for to block from that 0.95 threshold to 0.93 and uh, maybe code up something to run, uh, to model that or to run for a few days in experimental audit mode and see does that uh, lower threshold still meet our false positive kind of targets and, you know, that then if that's looking good, we can turn that on uh, live, something like that. And this is a bit of a deviation, but it would be great to understand what kind of context do you bring to this role from previous jobs? What have you, what were you studying in school? What did you intend to do? What were your jobs prior to Microsoft and, and how do you use them in your day to day? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was actually studying philosophy at Pacific Lutheran University down in Tacoma. I'm a, I'm a native Washingtonian. So Microsoft was right in my, right in my backyard. And it was basically the height of the dot-com boom and the end of the 90s. And I was, uh, had finished up the philosophy program at PLU and was planning to become a philosophy professor, but needed to get a job. In the interim, we had, I was married. We had a, a young child, another one on the way. So I decided to take a break from school, get a job. I, I started as a technical writer, actually, at Microsoft on the exchange team. I think you talked to Emily Hacker. I, I was uh, listened to the, the interview and, and learned that she was also started as a technical writer. So that was, that was pretty cool. And then worked in exchange for a few years before I got asked about joining this newly formed antivirus team. And I made the jump there. And, you know, I was, I actually never finished my four-year degree. So I was planning, you know, and made a plan with the, uh, my advisor. I finished the philosophy program, but still had some like general university stuff to uh, finish up. But once I started at Microsoft, I was just off and running and, and never looked back. So it's, it's actually kind of a uh, interesting, it's been an interesting journey. And, you know, sometimes I, I definitely suffer from, I would say, imposter syndrome uh, here and there, where I spend a lot of time writing code day to day but I've never been formally trained in, in computer science. It's all been sort of self-taught or picked up on the job kind of thing. When I moved from uh, program management and sort of the engineering side into research, I came without the deep reverse engineering background that a lot of my colleagues had. So that was something that, you know, I kind of felt like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be hard for me to pick up. And so it's a, uh, Sometimes that, you know, lack of, of a formal academic background, I, I feel like, you know, is a bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, but I just try and, uh, you know, do the best I can and, and go from there. Talk a bit about philosophy, and then I'd love for you to talk about how and if you, you use it in your job today. Yeah, I, so my, when I, I first, I, I was not a good student in high school, and so I, I barely graduated high school uh, with a very low GPA. And so I, I, when I decided to finally get my act together and, and go back to school, I started at a community college and I needed to take English 101 and uh, just as part of the, you know, every college requirement. And so the, the English 101 class I took was a combined English 101 and philosophy taught by uh, two professors who were husband and wife. And Debbie Knurk, the wife, taught the, uh, the English 
portion, and then her husband, John, taught the philosophy portion, and it was basically an amazing class. Uh, my identical twin brother, who also works at Microsoft, by the way, was in the same class with me, and we both just just fell in love with with philosophy. I think I, I just love the the idea of open-ended questions that you that, that had no answer. So, you know, philosophy, I think, differentiated from the sciences is, you know, it's dealing with questions that will never actually be answered, like what is beauty and what is a good argument? There's always going to be different opinions. And just the, the idea of these big open-ended, unsolvable questions, but that people will keep getting closer and closer to the truth, hopefully over time. I just fell in love with that. In terms of applying philosophy at work, I think the biggest thing that that I got out of uh, like studying philosophy as in undergraduate school at PLU was the rigorous approach to problem solving. So even though the you know, you have these big open-ended problems, like I said, that probably are never going to get answered. Uh, the approach, a uh, philosophical approach, is very uh, rigorous and requires incredibly good communication skills, like to be able to communicate your ideas effectively and, and your arguments, you know, cogently. Like that, I think, has stood me in extremely good stead in my career. And I think that's that's one of the the things that I bring to the table. And, you know, I think someone like Emily, like you mentioned with the journalism background, is just that ability to communicate. There's so many brilliant people who, you know, work in the technical field, but who are unfortunately not great communicators. And often they, they need someone to to help translate what their, you know, their brilliant ideas into something that other people can actually uh, understand what, what they're what they're aiming at. And that's something that I think I've been able to do fairly successfully. And, and, and that just that ability to really rigorously attack a problem and break it down into small components, which I think comes from, you know, some of that training, uh, I think has also done a great job or I've, I've you know, has, has stood me in good stead with malware analysis and threat analysis and that kind of thing. So I, I know Nick is dying for me to ask this, but <laughs> <laughs> you said you had an identical twin. You just dropped it in there casually uh, that works at Microsoft. Do you guys pull pranks together? Have you, have you done it as kids? Do you do it at Microsoft? <laughs> yeah, you have no idea. So Mike actually worked on the antivirus team as the, at the same time as I did. And so he, he joined Microsoft before, before me and has worked, worked on NT5, which became Windows 2000, and is a brilliant dev. But he was actually one of my devs, and I was his PM, working on the uh, antivirus. Oh, this is probably mid-2000s. For a number of years, we were on the same team, and then he went off to uh, Intune. But, I mean, the amount of confusion we caused when people would walk into meetings or even just down the hall, it, it was uh, it was quite fun. Um, I'm, I'm sure we played some pranks. It's been great. And there was one time very early on, we weren't on the same team at that point, where he uh, was in my office over in exchange. Uh, he had come over to grab a coffee. Uh, he was across the street. And I had you know gone down to, I think, get a refill or use the restroom or something. And this guy, David, came in and started talking to Mike like he was me. Hey, Randy, I've got some questions about this thing. And and Mike was like, oh, I'm not Randy. And David looked at him and said, just like shook, shook his head and then said, oh, so anyway, <laughs> I've got questions, you know, do you know about this? And Mike's like, no, I, I'm not Randy. And he looked at him and he said, wait, are you serious? Uh, and uh, uh, 
that you know. So we've had those kind of those kind of incidents. Mike, Mike is my go-to person whenever I I get stuck on a programming problem uh, because he's a brilliant programmer. Uh, so I, I'm constantly sending him my code and saying, "Hey, I'm struggling with this." He usually responds with something like, "What is this monstrosity?" Uh, and things like that. Since I, I'm not nearly the coder <laughs> that he is, but. Subtle. Who's the older twin by, you know, a fraction of a second or a minute? Uh, Mike's like four minutes older than I am. I love that your your prank was actually a wholesome misunderstanding, <laughs> you know, an unintentional wholesome misunderstanding. I was like typing frantically with Natalia trying to see if there was some example where you each went to the other's like annual review and just, you know, um, tried to just say ludicrous things <laughs> to, to the manager to see when they caught on. But no. No, I haven't done no. too much of that at work. Although, I mean, in high school, like he would skip class and I would go to his art class because my I had a girlfriend who was in the same class and one day I got forced to you know I got called up to make a presentation uh of course they thought I was Mike and and I was completely unprepared and I just sort of fumbled my way through it and I learned that oh that was not quite uh, didn't work out the way I was hoping it would <laughs> I'll throw this out there. My younger brother also works at Microsoft. He's a producer uh on like Xbox video stuff. So there's a bunch of us running around. How many other trites are there? And my sister, uh, Tammy, worked on Exchange at the same time I did um, <laughs> back in the day. There are six of us trite siblings, and uh, I guess four of us have worked at Microsoft. My younger sister is a doctor in Seattle, and my older sister is uh, a teacher in Germany. Thank you, Randy. We're happy to have you at Microsoft. Happy to have two-thirds of your uh, family at Microsoft here, and we'll definitely love to have you back. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.